This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service, September 18th, 2016, at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The speaker is Sam Ford. More information can be found at restorationroadchurch.com. Amen. Well, if you'd uh, open your Bibles to the book of Jeremiah, which if you just open your Bible in the middle, you'll probably get to Psalms, and then turn to the right, and you'll get Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and Isaiah, and then Jeremiah. And this morning is a little bit different. We're taking a little bit of a, a pause from Genesis, which we have been just going straight through that book, and it'll just be kind of one standalone sermon. Some would call this a, a vision Sunday. I think it's better probably described as just a focus Sunday where I'm going to try and, and, and communicate my heart and the heart of the leadership in terms of what we hope for uh, in, the, in the near future, in the, in the next year, maybe next half year of what our focus is going to be. And we're going to do that out of Jeremiah chapter 20. Nine. So I'm just going to read the first 14 verses of that chapter, um, if you'd follow along with me. Verse 1 says, These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This is after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen, and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Eliasah and the son of Saphan and Gemara, the son of Helkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And it said, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray for the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when seventy years are completed for Babylon... I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for wholeness and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you, and you will seek me and find me. And when you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I'll restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. This is God's Word. Some of those verses may sound familiar to you. I bet you have them on your walls at home, some of you, not realizing perhaps what the context of those verses are. So I'm going to try to give that to you today. And to do that, in order to understand this text, and even just the book of Jeremiah, which maybe you've never read before, though you've probably, as I said, heard verses quoted from it, we need some background. So many times we, we open the Bible and we read stuff and we really read it without a sense of literacy. And I feel like my responsibility as one of your pastors is to just make sure you understand the story of God and how the Bible works. And so I'm going to give you a really quick background 
so that you can understand what's going on here. We've been in Genesis, um, and so not to kind of spoil the ending for you, but by the end of Genesis, uh, Abraham's great-grandson Jacob, you may have heard of him, and his family, he's got 12 sons, they are living in Egypt by the end of Genesis, and they are living as welcome guests. And after a 400-year sabbatical or so, they end up being slaves. You may have heard that before. They are led to freedom by uh, a man named Moses. And after the crossing the Red Sea and receiving the law and wandering around the wilderness for 40 years, a generation of unfaithful Israelites die. Remember, they have a promise of this promised land. So right at the edge of the promised land, God makes them wander around and kills them all because they're all unfaithful, and he takes their kids in. And so a faithful generation rises up and is led by a man named Joshua. It's recorded in the book of Joshua. And really that is when they go and take possession of the land. It's a, it's a book of war. And Joshua is like a, a general. And we do have those sermons online so you can learn more about that. But after the land is conquered, after it's divided and allocated into the 12 tribes of Israel... Joshua dies just as Moses had died, and what happened is after a faithful generation, a very unfaithful generation rises up, and there really is no leader. That's where you get the book of Judges, and all these little leaders pop up, and Israel sins, and then Israel is saved, and, and, and it kind of goes through a cycle throughout that book, and they endure this leaderless kind of period of time, and finally, some would call the last judge, some would call the first prophet, but a man named Samuel shows up. And his entire life from his birth to death is recorded. And eventually, the Israelites want a king. So they ask Samuel for a king. This is a rejection of God. Samuel's really reluctant, but God says, go ahead and do it. They're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. And they install the first king of Israel, his name is Saul. That leads to the second king of Israel and the greatest king of Israel named David. And David has a son who comes out of a very interesting situation named Solomon. Well, Solomon has a vast kingdom in terms of just power and prosperity and all these things, but eventually he dies. And right after he dies, Israel, kind of their whole unity falls apart. And they are immediately, through a series of events, I'm obviously abridging it for you, they divide into the north and south. Okay, So you have the northern part of what was Israel called Israel, and the south called Judah. So as you read through the Old Testament, it often talks about Judah Sometimes that's talking about the one tribe, and sometimes that's talking about the whole southern part of Israel, which included Judah. And then Israel, at times, is talking about all of Israel, but sometimes it's just talking about the northern part of Israel, so you have to understand which is which. I know, I just probably made it more confusing for you. But lots of kings come and go through these different, the north and the south, Israel and Judah. And they basically, um, uh, most of them are evil, some of them are good. Um, usually the uh, next one coming up is worse than the last, and occasionally one will say, hey, my dad was a real slimeball, I'm going to reform, and, and they will be good for a while. And as different kings rise and fall, different prophets come. And you have all these books of the Bible, and a lot of them are named after prophets, and a lot of them uh, come at the same time. So, for example, uh, the greatest prophet in northern Israel is Isaiah. Okay? And he was much earlier than the prophet we're reading today, Jeremiah. But there's a prophet named Habakkuk, of which we also preached on some time ago, and he's about the same time as Jeremiah, or they cross over. So just because it's in order in the Bible doesn't mean they're not actually happening at the same time. So again, getting context to what is happening. But the greatest 
uh, prophet, if you will, in the north, as I said, was Israel. I'm sorry, was Isaiah. And Isaiah prophesied during a time where Israel was the northern part of this nation was being really bad, they're rebellious, and basically he came and he warned that the Assyrians, this great nation, was going to come and conquer him, and eventually they did. Jeremiah rose up in the south, pretty much telling the same thing, and he basically prophesied, starting at a very young age, for about 40 years, until Babylon conquered Assyria, and then conquered Judah and Egypt and others. Jeremiah's time period, though, is... is through the last five kings of Judah. So there was a bunch of kings, and the last five before Babylon basically takes over is the time period where Jeremiah is um, prophesied. And when he began, there was a young king named Josiah. And Josiah was kind of a stud. Uh, Josiah's dad was horrible. Uh, and so one day they found the book of the law, God's law, kind of collecting dust in the temple. And they thought, hey, what's this? And they started to read it, and Josiah went, oh my gosh, we're totally like rebellious, and he began to make great reforms. And Josiah died, though, at a very young age, about 39, and that was really despairing, and it's recorded, uh, Jeremiah speaks about it. Jeremiah, lots of things he writes about, is very tear-filled, that's why they call him the weeping prophet. Lamentations is written by Jeremiah, and it's basically a lament, a big cry fest, and so... Uh, very sad things. He, he wept over what happened with Jos- Josiah. Uh, and then he watched as the people, the reforms that had been made went just out the window and they began to ignore God again. They ignored Jeremiah and some of the things that God had told them, told him to reveal to Israel about their rebellion and their idolatry. And they fell deeper into sin and eventually were captured, if you will, conquered by Babylon. Now, Jeremiah did say that one day Babylon is going to be punished for what they're doing. But he also said, right now, they're being used as a tool to spank Israel or Judah specifically. And so, um, they were being punished because they were very idolatrous. Uh, They were uh, adulterous. They were abusive of the poor. They were slanderous. They were even sacrificing some of their children at one point. So Israel, God's own people, Judah, went pretty bad and deserved, if you will, to be punished. And so as with their practice, when Babylon came in, and you heard this at the very beginning of Jeremiah, they took all the culture makers, all the leaders, all the priests, all the elders, and they pulled them out of uh, where they lived, and they took them back to Babylon. And they did that because that was the way to reculture, if you will, the areas that they conquered in the name and the spirit of Babylon by removing those who actually shaped culture, whether it be the craftsmen or the artists or the leaders or the priests and those kinds of people. So most of the nation is in exile in Babylon. They're not living at home anymore. Jeremiah actually still is living in Jerusalem. And during the exile time that this is taking place, different prophets rose up and they started telling lies to the people. They say like, oh, um, you know what, while you're here, refuse to serve anybody and um, don't even like enjoy your time here because you're going to go back real soon, don't worry. And Jeremiah uh, was told by God, you tell them they're a bunch of liars. I didn't send those guys and that's not true. He tells them that they're going to be there for a long time. 
And then through Jeremiah here, he gives them direction about how to live as exiles in the city where they're at, which brings us to where we're here. And so, in verse 5, you can see in the very beginning, he says, I'm writing this letter, and he wrote this letter to these exiles, and in verse 5, he begins some instruction to them. First thing he tells the exiles in terms of how to live in the city where they're no longer, you know, it's not their home, they're in the land of the enemy. He says, build houses and live in them and plant gardens and eat their produce and take wives and have sons and daughters and take wives for your sons and give your daughters a marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. It's important to remember that the Jews are not... um, prisoners in the truest sense of the word, or slaves in Babylon. They haven't been enslaved in the sense where they're being forced to work or something like that. They've just been moved. They have become forced citizens of a new nation, a different nation, an ungodly nation. They have been exiled from their homeland, as I said, so that Babylon can spend time reshaping their homeland. The exiles may have lost their land where they used to live, but they, according to Jeremiah, are not to have lost their identity within the land that they find themselves in now. It is possible, Jeremiah is going to tell them, to live in one land but be governed by another that you don't live in. And I think it's always curious about the commands God gives His people Because it implies a necessity for that command, right? He gives them the command, don't do this because there's going to be a temptation to do just that. Or be careful to do this because there's going to be temptation to not do that. So we have to read that and go, why is he telling them these particular things as they live in this particular place away from where they want to be? God through Jeremiah tells them this first part, Build homes. Build families. Increase. Multiply. Have weddings. Enjoy your lives. Because there's a temptation for the exiles to live apart and away from the world. To hide away. There's a sense that as exiles, they are and will fear culture and want to be away from culture and have nothing to do with anyone that's not an Israelite in exile. Don't want to engage or build relationships with Babylons or do Babylonian things. The truth is, while they must protect themselves, hiding is not the same as living. Living in and celebrating with and otherwise engaging with culture does not have to mean compromising. We see Daniel, the book of Daniel, written by Daniel, doing that very thing in Babylon. Living in and as, if you will, a really good Babylonian without compromising his faith. The best way, Jeremiah is told, in the exiles, or he's telling the exiles, the best way to fight ungodly culture is to build godly culture within it. It's to live in a way that's godly within an ungodly culture. They're not to um, be so in love with God's future promises 
and so devoted to God's future promises at the expense of living in the present with what God wants them to do. Like I preached a couple weeks ago about the eternal perspective, and we have to be really careful about that because while that does inform and while that does give us perspective on so many different things, it can also become a way to distract us from what we're called to do here and now. And so Jeremiah is telling them, look, God expects you to live. To be active. Not just materially active, well, I've got to do business with the Babylonians. To be relationally engaging. To be involved. In many ways, he's, he's giving, if you will, the exiles permission, but God is revealing to, to them how someone navigates the tension between living in the world and not of the world. Between um, you know, being in a place uh, where you can actually uh, participate in culture without compromising. Not to suggest that's easy. I think that the, the two mistakes, right? There's two ditches on those mistakes. One ditch is where um, you just do whatever. I'll just do whatever. doesn't matter. I'm free in Christ. I can participate in anything. No big deal. Then the other side is like, no, here's the list of things you can do and not do. Those are two big mistakes. And the tension that we're to live in as, as we live in this culture and the exiles are to live in is like, okay, how do I participate and engage without compromise? You know what that requires? A lot more Bible study, a lot more discussion with God's people, and a lot more prayer. Doing nothing is easy. Making lists is easy. But in the tension of, what do I do right now? What do I do in this moment? What do I do in the next moment? That requires a little more work. So he says, live. Live in the city. Don't hide away. Don't be some little Israelite club hidden away that like, you, know, you aren't allowed to come in because you're not a member. Second thing he tells them is uh, perhaps more disturbing. Again, try to put your mind in the, in the Israelite exile. I'm in Babylon. I've been torn away. My family. I have no more money. I have no more goods. My whole life that I knew is gone. He says, I want you to seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you to exile. Seek the welfare of the city. Not just live, seek the welfare of the Babylonian, pagan, ungodly city where you live. Now this would have been a shocking word to the Israelites. In the eyes of the exiles, King Nebuchadnezzar is the one who ripped them away from everything they knew. King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians are evil. They're the ones that have hurt us. They are our enemies. But it's interesting what God says through Jeremiah. You tell them to seek the wealth of the city where I sent them. Where you sent us? You mean Nebuchadnezzar? Nope! Nebuchadnezzar's a tool. He is my puppet. He does what I want, and I had him take you to where you are at. And you're going to be there for 70 years, people. A lifetime. That's a lifetime. That's why they can say, hey, have marriages and then give your sons and daughters away. Like, oh, this isn't going to be like a little one-year stay. No, your life is re-beginning here. 
But he even says more that he's not just sent them to merely live. He sent them to seek the welfare of the city, to seek the shalom of the city. You may have heard the word shalom before. It's a very important word in the Hebrew language, a very meaningful word in the human, I mean, Hebrew language. It signifies um, a, a deep health and perfection and completeness of well-being. It's not just like welfare, what we might think about today. It is fullness and a deep and abiding peace in all things. Health in all things. They are called to seek the welfare of this city. They are called in a very intentional, active way to look in their city, the city of their enemies, the city that has hurt them, the city that, is, that does not love God, and find those areas where things are broken. Find those areas of injustice. Find those areas of need and work to restore safety and health and fullness of life. Now can you think about how an Israelite would receive that? I've, I've pretty much been what feels like put in prison, taken from everything I know, and now I'm supposed to bless where I live. I'm supposed to bless them. I'm supposed to love those who have hurt me. Those who are unlike me. Those who do not believe the same things as me. Yeah, you can see where this is going. Not only is God instructing the Israelites, right? Because the false prophets, He's instructing them to to ignore the false prophets are coming. So prophets are coming up, and I would call them professional prophets because at this time there are a lot of guys making good money speaking for the Lord. That doesn't sound much different than today, right? And they're speaking falsely, and, and God comes and says, you tell them I didn't send those guys. And you'll know them because what they're saying is, don't worry, we're headed home. Don't serve the king. Don't love this city. It's horrible. We're going to get out of here real quick. Now, Jeremiah is writing, and God is speaking through Jeremiah because, yeah, you've got a competing uh, narrative happening. But there's not just an external narrative going on. There's not external voices going on. There's internal ones. There's the temptation to live for yourself. Live! Live in the city for yourself. It's so easy and and very natural and even at some level fleshly understandable for the exiles here to want to just help themselves and not ever seek the welfare of those who aren't really helping them. It's easy for them and natural for them and even desirous for them to build lives for themselves, to keep their head down, to look after their own interests. i got enough to worry about me. And that is why God has to say, don't just live. Fine, Lord. We're not going home for 70 years. Fine, I will work my job, I will have my family, and I will just let them be and leave me alone. He says, no. You're to seek the welfare of the city. He doesn't want God's people to mind their own business. He doesn't want His people to mind their own business. There is a responsibility without question 
And Daniel, you see him do this in, in a very unique and, and powerful way. There's a responsibility to call the world you live in to righteousness. But there's also God's calling to bring righteousness to the world. To show them what rightness is by loving that which is broken to rightness and to fullness and to restoration. So he says, help the city. Live in the city. But the last thing he says in this little section here, and perhaps most interesting, he says, pray for the city. Pray for the city. He says, pray to the Lord on its behalf, and in its welfare you'll find your welfare. Okay, so what is prayer if not a plea to God for blessing? A plea to God to, to move and to love and to help. As they endeavor to find people and, and places to restore in the city, they are to pray for God to work through their work. And without question, I think this would have surprised, even disturbed the exiles to hear that God wanted them to petition Him on behalf of their enemies. Sounds a lot like Jonah. If you know anything about Jonah, that was at the time when the Assyrians were really great. Nineveh was the main capital of Assyria. The Assyria that actually ended up conquering Israel, the northern part of the nation. And Jonah's told, hey, go to Nineveh and um, tell them to repent. And what did Jonah do? Heck no. That'd be like, hey, go to Syria and go to the main city and tell them to repent, right? Be like, mm, take the boat this way, right? He ends up in Nineveh, goes through, he's like, fine. He like marches through the city. God says, repent, he's going to kill you. God says, repent, he's going to kill you. God says, repent, he's going to kill you. He goes up on the hill and he's like, okay, God, kill him. And they repent. And he's angry. He's like, What? God's telling His people here, pray on their behalf. Pray for their repentance. Pray that I will move. Ask me to help them. And again, you realize that when God gives the exiles that command, that's more for them than it is for anybody else. That's not even so much for the Babylonians as it is for the exiles to understand His heart. Because the Israelites, on the scale of righteousness, are no greater than the Babylonians. They've just been the ones that God has chosen to love. The command reveals a much or a lot about God's heart, and their reaction to that command would probably reveal a lot about their own. But that's not the most powerful part of this last section in Jeremiah's words. God tells them that as they pray, and as they seek the welfare of the city, they'll find their own shalom. Despite the difficulty as they love the city to which they are sent, if they seek the fulfillment in service to that city, to those people, they will find themselves fulfilled. They will find themselves full of shalom, if you will. 
restored themselves. When they seek the wholeness of the world around them, they will find their own wholeness in a very real sense. Divinely empowered and divinely inspired serving is the pathway to completeness. So we have a very different view, typically, exiles, of, of, of where we're going to find that completeness, where we're going to find that health, and it's typically quite inwardly focused. It's usually quite selfish, though we wouldn't describe it overtly as such. Sacrificing, serving, seeking the welfare of those who cannot help me, seeking the welfare and loving those who do not believe the same things I do. Are you kidding me? And he says, that's where you will find your fullness. That's where you'll find peace that actually comes directly from the Lord. So that's Jeremiah's message to the exiles. And we'll turn it a little bit to make it a little more personal, which may have already happened, but that's okay. You see, before we are in Christ, and I realize that not everyone here is a believer in Jesus, and I pray that you would see Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior and the only true hope in this life and the next. But before anyone is in Christ, they are what the Bible calls in the world. They are citizens of the world. We are born citizens of the world. We love the world. We are of the world. And Christians, disciples of Jesus, are those whom Jesus grabbed, called out of the world, and into His family. Same thing happened to Israel. Out of all the nations there were, he tells them in Deuteronomy, I didn't pick you because you were the biggest and baddest and most wonderful. I chose to love you. The same could be said by any Christian. We are no better. No Christian is any better than anyone in the world, but God says, I'm going to love you. Boom. Okay. That's awesome. And when you believe in Jesus When you respond to His call, you become in that moment a son and daughter of the King. You become in that moment a brother and sister in Christ. Right? You are suddenly into a family. You have a new identity. And part of that identity, the Bible says, is a disciple and an ambassador. Ambassador? That's someone who lives in a different country. Uh Uh-huh. Kind of making the connections. And interestingly enough, the last and longest prayer that Jesus prays before He's arrested in John 17. You know what He says? He says, don't take them out of the world, those who believe. In fact, I'm sending them back in to complete and continue the work that I've started. We are certainly not like the world, but we live in the world. And Peter uses some interesting language to describe us that sounds very suspiciously like Jeremiah. In 1 Peter chapter 2, it says, we are a chosen race, speaking about those who are in Christ. A royal priesthood. A holy nation. A people for His own possession. Speaking of believers. Believers. God's people, the church, 
that you may do what? Like, why are we a possession? Why are we a whole nation? That we may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. That's the whole purpose. Once, he says, you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as what? Sojourners and exiles. To abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, implying that you live among them. At least close enough for them to see what you're doing. Keep your conduct honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your what? Good deeds. And think you're rad? No. Glorify God. That they may glorify God. The Bible calls us right now exiles. That this is not our home. That this is not our our primary citizenship. And as, as, as exiles, it's very tempting, just as it was for Israel, to hide away from the world. To kind of create your own little life over here, like just leave me alone, I'm going to live my life, build my family, have my career, and then die. It's very tempting to do that. And to be completely indifferent to the needs around you. It's easy to hate a world and to be saddened by a world that does some very sorrowful things and even is very hateful. It's easy to pray for those who you know are praying for you. But God has called us to more. According to Acts 17, Paul says that we are placed exactly where we're supposed to be. That our time in this city and in this generation and in this part of the country where there's some very hard soil is not an accident. Despite what you think or feel about how you found yourself here because of jobs and different things, nothing has brought you here, but someone has sent you here. It'd be interesting to imagine what your mentality might, you know, how it might change if you viewed yourself as someone who was sent and not just someone who was brought by circumstances. Like, when we send a crew, which we're going to, to Chile, Mike and Jen and their family are there now, like, I'm pretty sure they understand what it means to be sent. To be in a place that's not normal. Like, if we could have that mentality here that actually I've been, I've been sent here as an ambassador to represent and to proclaim the excellencies of Him who called me out of darkness do you realize that this is all going to burn up and that there is a heavenly kingdom, if you will, a new heavens and a new earth that is reserved for us and we are just biding our time here, but we have something to do to proclaim the excellencies of Him who saved us to see more people saved because of that work. Snohomish, and I would say Lake Stevens and Monroe, like where the cities begin and end, maybe Snohomish County. This is our city, if you will, our city. 
The place where we've been sent. The place where we build our lives. And the place where we figure out, okay, who exactly is my neighbor? And every Sunday at different times during the week, and especially on, or also during the week, we do gather, right? We gather here. This is an important place. And we gather to remember our true identity. To, to sit here and to remember who we are in Christ. We are not what the world says we are. We're not even what we say we are at times. We are what the Bible says we are. Sons and daughters of the King. Brothers and sisters in Christ. Disciples and missionaries and ambassadors to the world. Okay. We remember that. We remember that we live in one kingdom governed by another. We are not simply called, though, to just gather. Gathering together is not enough. We should not neglect it. It is incredibly important. But as we gather and we remember our identity, we are called to grow in that, grow together, but also to go together, to serve together, to seek the welfare of our city together. The Bible calls us a sent people, ambassadors who seek to love the world without falling in love with the world. That's an interesting tension. We are to love the world without falling in love with it so that we can reveal the love of the one true God. We are called to serve as a way of life because Jesus came to serve as a way to our life. And as we live for God, we do the work of God. And there are, as Peter says, good deeds, welfare to seek that we can do for the glory of God. I believe as you read the Scriptures, particularly the New Testament, but it's actually replete throughout the Old Testament as well. That God desires us to do justice and to seek mercy, especially for those in need. To serve the poor and the needy is to serve Jesus. Jesus Himself tells us in Matthew 25 that, that our effort to feed the hungry and clothe the naked and welcome the stranger has actually eternal significance. According to Jesus' younger brother James, which you've probably heard before, true faith is evident only when what we hear becomes what we do. I'm glad that we show up on Sunday and we hear what we are called to do, but we fail as God's people if we never do it. I can't bend arms and force people to do stuff, and you can't do the same for me. We can hear it, but we've got to do it. Otherwise, it's meaningless. And when God calls us to seek the welfare of the city, we have to be very honest and intentional about what that means. James tells us that that's what true religion is characterized by. Helping those in need, especially the most vulnerable among us, whom I think Jesus calls the least of these. And this is why, like, I got this t-shirt. I love t-shirts. Every, you'd be surprised. Every time we have, like, a staff meeting, there's an event, I'm like, we probably need t-shirts for that, huh? Right? I think t-shirts, like, make everything better, okay? 
We're going to hear this, this, this idea, this, this focus of restore Snohomish over and over and over again until you're just sick of it. We are called to seek the welfare of the least of these, and I would generally characterize those as the unborn, the unwanted, the unable, the unimportant, the unclean, a lot of uns. But I think those are good categories. And we don't seek this welfare to build credit with God. That's not what we're doing. We do this because we understand who we were without Christ and who we are in Christ. We do this because we understand that in Christ, we were reborn by grace. We understand that that Jesus has declared us wanted. He has made us able through Him. That on the cross, Jesus revealed to us just how important we were to Him. And through His death and resurrection, He has made us clean. So when you talk about the unborn and the unwanted and the unable and unimportant and unclean, we go seek the welfare of those and restore, if you will, justice and fullness of life in those areas because we have been restored to fullness of life in Christ in the exact same way. And as we work to restore a world wrecked by sin, this is what we have to believe and deeply, deeply believe. That as we seek to restore those around us, yes, beginning with our own church family and those that we already in relationship with, but those that we're in relationship with outside of this place, we have to believe that as we seek that, we will actually experience our own restoration. That as we seek the welfare, we will actually find our welfare. We seek the peace and seek to love, we will find that peace and that love that comes from Christ. We are called to go and seek the welfare of others because Jesus came and sought ours. And we do this in the midst of a world that doesn't believe like us, that often hates us, and makes things difficult. But we have a hope. We have a hope that even though we are here for 70 years, this is not where it ends. And I'll close with the last part of 10 and 11 which again is one of those verses you probably see. I have, a, I have it on a picture on my wall. And I was telling my kids what it meant. I'm like, oh, that's an interesting context. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. Do you believe Jesus is coming back? I will visit you and I'll fulfill my promise and bring you back to where we belong. For I know the plans I have for you, right? There's that verse, right? How many times you drop that baby out of context? (laughs) For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you and you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all nations and all the places where I've driven you and I'll bring you back to the place which I sent you into exile. We are in exile. And we may lose it all. We may sacrifice it all 
all of our fortunes and all the things that we had as we seek the welfare of those who do not love us, but we're going to love them. And in doing so, God promises, don't worry about losing here. Don't worry about sacrificing here. I got you. And I'm going to restore it all and give you the fullness of life that you truly are desiring for. God has a future plan for our complete restoration. And until then, I pray we will devote ourselves to His present restoration plan. I am convinced that we have been restored by Christ in order to restore for Christ. And we will find all the ways we can as a church, beginning in small groups, to do that. I don't know what that all means, but I know that, man, we got this gathering down pat. We, we, we're good at that. I think we need to turn out and begin to love and serve those in our city. Let's pray.